based on your experiences with nonprofit boards, what are some practices nonprofit boards all too often keep status quo but should work to avoid? I think the, there's probably a lot. And I'm sure, Stacey, you have way more than I do. The, <laughs> the one that I see is that the failure to recognize when your board is in adolescence, which is that uncomfortable age between a working board and a governing board. And so, so many, so many boards, they start small, the organization is small, they've all got work to do, their fingers are in the, the pie of all the programs, they're, they're dealing with all this sort of low-level activity. And then the organization grows, they bring on development people, they bring on program people, they bring on managers, and the board won't let go. They won't get their yeah. claws out of all of these like fun little programs that they like to work on, and the staff just gets infuriated yes. because you can't do your job because now well, I'm going to go check with, you know, whoever, because <laughs> yes. I can't do this because she's been doing this for a million years and she's the one that needs to sign off on it, which as we know is a totally inappropriate relationship between board members and staff, right? The board members should all supervise the executive director. The executive director should supervise all the staff. It's like, it's like an hourglass shape. If you go outside of that hourglass yep. shape, you've broken your hourglass and don't do that. But what do you think? Oh, gosh, I have, you know, I'm just picking up my list from the floor because it's so long. <laughs> People, they bring on managers and the board won't let go. They won't get their yeah. claws out of all of these like fun little programs that they like to work on. And the staff just gets infuriated yes. because you can't do your job because now well, I'm going to go check with, you know, whoever, because yes. I can't do this because she's been doing this for a million years and she's the one that needs to sign off on it, which, as we know, is a totally inappropriate relationship between board members and staff, right? The board members should all supervise the executive director. The executive director should supervise all the staff. It's like, it's like an hourglass shape. If you go outside of that hourglass yep. shape, you've broken your hourglass and don't do that. But what do you think? Oh gosh, I have, you know, I'm just picking up my list from the floor because it's so long. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, I know we only have so many minutes on this podcast, so I will try to keep my comments brief. Um, a few things. I, and some of these are super micro things, but they are annoying as heck. Okay. The status quo of waiting for a board meeting to start because you have that perpetual one or two board members who are late. Now I get you might need quorum. So like, <laughs> let's say quorum aside, let's say your quorum's met, but oh, we're just going to wait. We're going to start 15 minutes late because this, because we're waiting for this person. It's it's disrespectful, right, to everybody that's in the room, like whatever, the, the whole, you know, pile of, pile of wax, whatever. That's not an expression, pile of something, right? <laughs> it's a pile of something, a pile of crap. I don't know what it is, but anyways. So, but but the other thing is, is I think, um, right, like get, allowing board members to come to board meetings, like, and read the documents totally where you'll say, unprepared. yes, unprepared. Oh, read that. Let's read the minutes, but right here, let's take five minutes to read the minutes. Like before, have you been to a board meeting where they've done that? <laughs> like literally like before we're going to make a motion. It's so infuriating. Yeah. Like yeah. it's infuriating. You're like, okay, now obviously I get this. So if I'm a board member listening to this, I'm going, well, it'd be nice if I got my board materials more than a day before. So like, there's a whole cycle <laughs> with this, right? Like, the, the, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm it's responsible for that. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, so it's kind of like, okay. Yeah. So, so I get it from both sides, but that's it. I think the other thing that like, I, the, um, Oh, this tendency of, of, of boards to recruit like they are 
doing, they are desperately selling the organization. Here's all the amazing perks or not perks like financial perks, but just like, here's the benefits to being a, on our board. Instead of actually having the serious conversation, there are benefits and there are expectations and roles and responsibilities. And here's the job description. And, and instead of like under mining that not or never even bringing that up or being because you're so desperate to get a board member so you think I'm just not gonna tell them that because that's gonna scare them off and guess what that is like the worst practice that I see done over and over and over again and like we got to stop doing that this is why we're getting crappy board members (laughs) yeah right yeah anyway those those are a few there's a lot more but you know so I want, I want to seed another question for someone to ask us for next next time, which is like what when you're recruiting board members, like what what do you need to tell board members when you're recruiting them to be perfectly honest with them, like to get really good, committed people? Like, how do you find those people? What do we talk to them about? Yes. So please. Send Please us that question. Send us that question. Because we're not going to answer it we're, now. We're, we're not going to answer it unless you send it, okay? <laughs> That's the rule. You have to ask us the question. Nonprofit government. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Strict. I'm here with my fantastic co-host Stacy Wedding, and we're ready to answer any nonprofit question that you have. So that means that you need to send us questions. If you don't send us questions, we will talk about other things, and who knows what they'll be, and they probably won't be that fun. So send us questions. That's the way the podcast works. You can get us on Facebook, Twitter, any place you can find us. You can text us. Um, you can call us at home, preferably late at night. Um, whatever you need to do to, to get that question into us. Um, I think we've seeded at least one question during this episode. So that's a good place to look too. is if we actually say, Hey, send us a question, just go ahead and send that to us <laughs> type it up in your own words. <laughs> We're making you do the work. Um, this is a production of the Alliance for Nevada nonprofits, which I'm sure you already know is the state association for nonprofits in Nevada. If you haven't gone to see uh, what they're up to lately, go check it out. You can find them at Alliance for Nevada nonprofits.org on the internet. They've got lots of information up there. One of the best ways to support the podcast is becoming a member of Anne. Um, that gets you all the Anne member benefits as well as helping us keep this podcast going. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. If you've got any suggestions on things we could do better, if you've got any thoughts or ideas or, or complaints, go ahead and send those to us too. If you go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage, there's a contact us form. It's where you would one of the places you can send us a question. You can also send us sponsorship information or complaints about how much you don't like something. Um, we read everything you send us. So even if it's something minor, send it to us. We, we're really excited for that feedback. Uh, we want to make this as useful to the nonprofit sector as we can. And the only way we can do that is to find out what it is you guys want. And uh, the only way we can find that out is if you tell us. So go ahead and tell us. We, we look forward to it. And with that, we're going to jump right in. I have an employee who recently was promoted to a management position, and he is not much of a communicator. 
When we have our weekly meetings, I have to pull information out of him, and he isn't very forthcoming. He's a fairly shy person to begin with, but this lack of sharing concerns me. I don't know how to support him when I don't know if there's anything on his mind he'd like help with or feedback on. I feel like that last sentence is sort of where I would probably start. I would, I would, I would ask, I would say, listen, I, I know you're kind of quiet. I mean, because I think it's about finding out if it's a, is this like a organizational culture issue? Like, I, I don't know enough details about, you know, how long the person who wrote in with this question has worked there, what the kind of culture of the organization is. Like, is it acceptable to have, some, you know, to, to speak up, to ask questions, all that stuff. But I think that you want to kind of figure out, is this just sort of like a personality thing, right? Is this just a super introvert? Or is there like a, is there something else? Like, is that just kind of the environment? I'm guessing probably it's not the environment because it sounds like this, this employee is the only person or one of the few that isn't really speaking. So, so it like feels to me like there, it might just be kind of a, a personality thing. And at, at which point, you know, you're not going to change the personality, but I think there's ways like you can work with people who are quieter. You can, you can draw them out a little bit, ask them specific questions, you know, so-and-so I, you've been a little quiet. Will you share with us what's on your mind or what, what is your perspective on this? Um, Perhaps even giving them things to think about in advance. I know that because introverts tend to process things internally it sometimes helps for them to know you're going to ask a question or or bring up a topic. So if there's agendas that go out in advance, that may help. And I think that's just good business practice anyway. But but those would be some of the strategies I would use. And I think it's also okay to say, hey, I, I want to support you. You're so quiet. I don't know what your needs are. Like is it, can we can we set aside some time to talk? And and sometimes someone's just waiting for you to initiate. So I don't know. That's my take. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think first you have to kind of think back to what it was like when you first became a manager, when you first got into that management position, because you don't immediately, I mean, unless you're weird, you don't immediately come with like tons of authority. You're you're sort of feeling out like how things are going to work. You don't really know where to draw the line between what's your responsibility and the people that you support, what their responsibility and the people you report to, what their responsibility is. That's really confusing sometimes. And, and it's, it's, I think it's just, you kind of have to put yourself back into that like mindset of remembering what it was like to say that like, maybe this person isn't just, you know, isn't sharing because they don't know what to say. They're, they're just sharing. They're not sharing because they don't know what their role is yet. And it's up to you as a, as their manager to like help them out with that is to say, here's what I expect for you. This is where we draw the line between your responsibilities and my responsibilities. Um, make sure that you're not filling the silence a lot of times. Cause that can be a big problem too, is if you know, especially like people are really uncomfortable with silence, which is you know, it's a fun game to play. If you want to torture folks, like if you're interviewing somebody, <laughs> one of the most fun things to do is just to say, so, and just sit there quietly and like, wait for the, like all of the, the dust in the room to settle down onto the desk <laughs> because people hate silence. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so maybe you just need to be more comfortable with that silence and wait for that person to bring something up that, that it's, you know, the, the instinct to just keep talking through everything is, is very, very strong. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
try to communicate. There are a couple of books that I recommend. One's called The Responsibility Virus that I read a long, long time ago, which is really good. And I think it should be required reading for anybody who manages anybody, because it really does talk about like now that you're managing somebody like here are the things you need to think about um, in a, in a really clear way. And it, it, I think it can head off a lot of communication issues between managers and employees a lot of times, and especially for new managers. Um, so I'll put that link in the show notes so that you can take a look at that book. Uh, it's been, it's out for a really long time. I'm sure you can find it in a library so you don't have to go pay for it or anything. Um, Wow, a good old-fashioned library, huh? Yeah. Oh, I gotta love the libraries, man. Right? I think you're kind of dating yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Just kidding. No, I love libraries too. And I, I think they get a bad rap and they're so modern these days. It's pretty cool. So yeah. Anyway, no, I love that book. And, and I was thinking when you said that one, there's one that I read a while ago that was good as well called The Coaching Habit. And it's it's really about asking the right questions when you're talking to people you supervise, right? And and so even if you're a director and this is a manager or whatever that hierarchy is, or you're the executive director, like being able to just ask some questions. And to your point, maybe it's just being quiet and giving the person a minute to process. I mean, I joke because I, I'm one of two ways. Like if I've had time to prep for something, I can be um, I, you know, I can be Johnny on the spot and be really quick with it. There's other times I take more time to process, but my husband in general is like a slow processor, smart as a whip, but like someone that if you are someone who fills that silence or talks quickly, he will get talked over the entire time and never say a word just because there's other people around that are more talkative. And so that's why I'm sensitive to the, like the personality, right? Like kind of adapting and maybe even if you're in a room full of other extroverts or people who tend to just take up that space, maybe even saying, hey, I know all of you have shared your opinion. Let's let's take a minute and I want to hear all the voices. So-and-so, what is on your mind? Like, like, because I think sometimes people need that and they need that time and sort of that quick mental prep. Okay, now I'm being asked. Like they've had time to process while everyone else has been blabbing on. So yeah, I... I think there's some good tools. Um, was there another book too you were suggesting, Andy? Mm, not, or not was the, it just the response? You said the responsibility virus? Responsibility virus is the one I recommend. Um, and and it's, look at your, the other thing I'd say is maybe look at the weekly meeting. Like what's the point of a weekly meeting if it's just to get people to regurgitate what they're working on? Because right. those, are, those are just, I hate those. And I don't talk in those. And I used to get in trouble for not talking in those too because it's like, I don't, I don't need... I don't need you to prove to me that you're working on something like that. Either you're going to get to the results you, that you, we need you to get to, or you're not going to get to the results. And if you need assistance, let me know. But sitting in a room and going around the table and say, so tell me what's going on in your world. It's like, uh, I got stuff to do. Like, can we get out of here? <laughs> like, I'm not going to talk in this meeting because like, it's, first of all, you know, I've got a lot of, a lot of things on my plate. I need to get them done. And the hour that we're taking to do this is another hour I'm going to have to spend after five today. Um, to get my work done. All right. Another finance question for our finance guru. Andy, what financial policies should a nonprofit have in place? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now that's a little bit snarky. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're a lot snarky. I just wanted to, sh- we can have a short answer for a change instead of like talking about something for 20 minutes. It's like, that's the answer. <laughs> all of them. No. So, I mean, there's nothing, nothing special about nonprofit financial policies. I mean, the, the difference between for-profit and nonprofit financial policies is that we have to deal with donations and donations have rules about them, about who you thank and what you can acknowledge and what you can't acknowledge. Um, so the question is like, like, what should financial policies include? And I think that's something that Google's going to be able to help you with more than a podcast. So, so there are like, first of all, if you have a bookkeeper that's helping you, if you have an auditor that's doing an audit for you, that's a great question for them because they have access to all of this research and tools and they can say, oh yeah, I've got a sample financial policy for you. And they can give that to you. Um, the, the main topics are going to be things that you've thought about already, which is how do I prevent people from stealing from me? How do I make sure that when donors give me money that I'm using it appropriately? How do I make sure that I've got an appropriate conflict of interest policy? Um, who's supposed to be signing checks? Like what does the board need to approve? Like all of those things that are just sort of like the, it's like the manual for operating the finance side of your organization. And, and a really detailed one, a really good one can be you know, upwards of 50 pages of detail about how, how you run things. Um, and the good thing about that is then you can get the board to approve it and say, these are the financial policies of the organization. We're going to look, you know, the, the finance committee is going to look at it once a year and kind of scan through it to make sure it still makes sense. Um, and then, and that, that's just the instructions. That's how you're, how you're going to operate all of the financial side of your organization. So, you know, I know it's a snarky answer to say all of them, but, but really it's, it's, it, it's something that you need to probably do some detailed research on. Um, and then, yeah, talk to your, talk to your auditor, talk to your bookkeeper, see if they've got templates for you because all these, like the big accounting firms like provide tools to everybody. That's like the sample financial policies. It's also something you can use if you're, if you're friendly with other people in the nonprofit spaces to borrow theirs. Cause everybody has one. All of the big players have one. They've been using them for years. Um, get a, get some samples from people like, Hey, would you mind sending me a copy of your financial policies? And most people say, sure. Yeah, no problem. Send them over to you. And then you can kind of pick and choose and go, Oh, this is supposed to be in them. And um, if you can try to find an organization that's of similar size um, or maybe just slightly larger than you, I think that is also helpful because sometimes you get financial policies. Like if you're a $1 million organization and you're getting financial policies um, that are just much more detailed or have many layers or sophisticated, I mean, the general principles are the same, but the way you go about it as a startup nonprofit or like a nonprofit with one or two staff versus a nonprofit rate with... 20 staff is different. So like, so trying to find someone who is, is of a similar size. Um, I also think back to that resource, that um, kind of National Association of Nonprofit Organizations, they have sample policies on their website, right? Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits belongs, you know, is a member of them. And it's, it's a great resource for like, just kind of checking some of this off your list. Um, one policy I was thinking of, and definitely a Google search and kind of pulling some of this from the internet's your best bet. But um, I also think, um, and, you know, I think executive director compensation is a big one, right? Like if you have an ED, um, like what's your compensation policy? How do you like set the compensation? Is there, is there like, because that's one of your 990 questions when you're doing the annual form 990, like, is there some kind of compensation process in place? So like, I think there's things like that that also can help guide you that to your point, Andy, your CPA or whomever is preparing, you know, doing 
your day-to-day books and then maybe your larger term audit or 990 work can absolutely point you in the right direction. I mean, I'm guessing if you're at an audit stage, you probably already have this stuff in place. Yeah, but it, it, you're right. It's anything that has to do with money, anything that touches money. And in a tiny organization is going to have different roles than a large organization is. You know, you, you borrow the one from a giant organization and it's like, the accounts payable clerk and you start laughing like what who's an account who's that supposed to be right <laughs> like we've got one person doing it so then you have to be really creative about like how we're going to do separation of duties which a lot of uh, financial policies is about separation of duties to make sure that the like and it's just you know i always find this really fun is thinking about ways to steal from the nonprofit too is like well if i have access to the vendor file all i need to do is change the name on the vendor and so when they think they're paying the electric bill they're actually sending the check to me right so like who's like is there somebody that can check that to make sure that that doesn't happen so those need to be two different people so one person isn't in charge of an entire stack so those kinds of things but yeah borrow some from somebody else pick and choose come up with the ones that make sense don't go overboard um, and your your accountant or your bookkeeper, or your auditor is absolutely a good a good place to start to say, hey, we need financial policies help out because they're they're totally willing to do that. So this next question, we got a question that was almost identical to a question we got a couple of years ago, and. The last time we answered it, that answer was so good and so perfect that we decided we would just replay it. And the reason the answer was so good and so perfect is because Stacy and I didn't do the answer. We reached out to guest expert John Waldron. So here is a replay from June of 2020, um, back when the world was new and we didn't know any better, um, of John Waldron answering a fantastic question. I'm really excited to bring this back to you again because it is so good. Um, please enjoy it. Hey everybody, Stacy Wedding here. Thanks so much for tuning in to a special guest we have with us today, uh, John Waldron, who is the CEO of the LGBTQ Center of Southern Nevada. We wanted to invite John in because uh, we got a, a timely question and Andy and I, as, as you heard, uh, started sharing our own opinions about it, but we certainly are far from the experts. So we thought, let's bring someone who's sort of in the trenches doing work around social justice issues to, uh, to help uh, kind of shed some light on a really important and timely topic today. So with that said, um, I'm going to ask John, who's, who's here with me today, to just uh, share anything and everything he wants to with us about himself, his background, and the center. John, welcome. Thank you, Stacy. It's wonderful to be with you. I've been a listener for a while, as you know, and so I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And uh, I'm just excited to share some things about the center. We've been uh, in Las Vegas now for about 27 years and uh, serving the LGBTQ community, but also serving low to moderate uh, income residents in the downtown area, including some of our home insecure residents in the area. So we do a lot more than just serving uh, the LGBTQ community. So I'm really proud to be here and share that with everyone. As far as me, um, I've been in town for 41 years now. And so a longtime resident, I spent 25 years in the newspaper business with the Review Journal on the advertising operations side of things and 
spent a little bit of time with Opportunity Village, which is where I got my taste of nonprofit and uh, my excitement over uh, being part of a mission and serving the community. Uh, made a short stop over at Boyd Gaming, had a wonderful experience there doing leadership development, and just got the opportunity back in January 2019 to take on the leadership of the center. And we were facing some pretty big challenges at the time. But we have a wonderful, wonderful team over there that worked really, really hard to overcome some some great challenges, and and we're building some uh, really good momentum. And and just like everyone else, the COVID crisis has thrown us a, a big curve and made things even more challenging for us. But it also gave the team over at the center, including our volunteers and our boards, the opportunity to rise to the challenge and. Um, and so we know we're going to come out the other side of this, just like the rest of the community. And, um, and, and again, we're just really, really proud of the work that we're able to do in service to others. Well, we are so lucky to have you, your experience, your background, and just who you are as a human being. Uh, for our listeners, I've had the pleasure of, oh gosh, John, I don't know, how many years has it been? Is it five years? Um, yeah, it's about five years. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got a better memory than I do. And, <laughs> you know, I, I first got to meet John at, at sort of a, a retreat we both were attending, and uh, it just felt like kismet at that point. And uh, really, I just appreciated, um, you know, who he, who you are as a person. And uh, it's been great to watch your journey and uh our, our nonprofit sector is so lucky to have you leading, uh, leading the helm at, at an important organization in our community. So, um, again, thank you for joining us. And um, with that, let's get started. So, really, the question uh, is, is very timely. Uh, it's something that probably is, is top of mind for many of our listeners. And, and the question we got was, should our nonprofit take a stand on social justice issues if we think it might alienate some donors? Always a heavy topic. John, can you share some of your thoughts on this? Sure. And as you know, the center is certainly an organization that part of our mission is social justice. And um, all of this is timely for us for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons why it's timely for us is the fact that uh, a segment of our community that is most under uh, threat of, of violence, including oftentimes murder, is our black trans female uh, um, members of the LGBT community. And so for us to be standing up for social justice causes in relation to racial matters is just part of what the center does and so it's an easy decision for us on where we place our participation as an organization and and what's currently going on and i realize and recognize that uh, that for others it may be more challenging but i think it starts with looking at where you stand on principle in the matter of social justice and the objectives of say for instance the black lives matter movement if on principle the organization or, or you support the movement and the cause of social justice, then there is what I believe to be a moral obligation to speak up and stand with the black community as they fight for their rights and protections from things like excessive force. And the hope at that point 
is that your donors will recognize that you've taken a stand for what you believe to be right and in alignment with the values of the organization that the donor chose to support. And most donors are sophisticated in understanding that they may not agree with everything the ED or the CEO may choose to do and can still support the mission and work of the organization that motivated them to, to offer support in the first place. I think the key is to communicate clearly and candidly on the decision and to answer the donor's questions, engage in a conversation to earn the respect for your decision that you made. And we know that being persuasive is a key skill when we lead an organization and we use that skill to clearly communicate the logic and reasoning of our decision. And in a case like this, we either bring the donor in alignment with our decision or we at least earn their respect that our decision is one of principle. And in the end, if a donor is subsequently lost over the decision, it will certainly be difficult, but often the right thing to do is the harder choice, right? Mm -hmm. And you have the opportunity at that point as a leader to stand up for what you know to be right and just. Well, I love, I love, um, I love the, what you said. It's, it rings true on so many levels. And I guess one of, one of the questions I have as a follow-up is, have you received, I mean, I would, my assumption would be at the center, given you're at the heart of so, so many of these issues and it's, it's really embedded in your mission. Have you received any pushback from some of your communications or have you heard of any other organizations who have received pushback, whether it be from donors or other people? Um, and how best, how best should people approach that pushback if they get it? Well, I think the the approach to it is the open dialogue. Uh, don't run away from things. Uh, we, we see that too much uh, in society as it is, which is part of the problem that we're having. We need to run toward the dialogue and, and toward the tough conversations, including conversations with our donors or others, uh, other supporters who uh, may have pushback. For the center, we... Again, as, as a social justice organization, uh, the expectation is for us to be participating and, and our donors understand that, our supporters understand and align with us in wanting us to be part of the conversation going on in the community right now and part of the solution. But again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I know that, that it's not as clear-cut for some organizations, but I think the worst thing that we can do at this time is to be fearful of the tough conversations, and, and we really do need to engage one another, and especially our supporters who may be having a little bit of pushback against us, but we are all at this time accountable for where we stand on things, and we, we have to decide where uh, we're going to put our energy and participating in what I think is a really critical time for our country and, and addressing issues of systemic, systemic racism and, um, and other things that people are, are out there talking about right now. I'm wondering, for, for the organization, the person who wrote in with this question, I, we don't have a lot of background, right? We don't know what their mission is. We're not sure what type of organization. Um, I guess, I mean, I, I mean, just sort of an observation, and, and I don't know. Um, I, I want to be compassionate for the person who wrote in. 
I'm wondering though also, uh, is there is there an opportunity if, if you are concerned about alienating donors, partners, whomever, um, is there something you think organizations can do um, perhaps to break, I don't know if it's brace, um, you know, is, is it just that the donor sees that communication the first time via email or whatever public statement is released, social media, and, and that's where the donor sees it? Or do you think there's an opportunity for um, not asking permission, because I don't, I don't think we want to set up that dynamic, but some kind of conversation before that goes live if, if they are worried about some of these sensitivities? Do you think there's any opportunities there? There's certainly opportunity to connect with our donors directly, especially when we know that we have a donor who may have some issues with what we're about to do. And hopefully we get to know our donors well enough, and especially our major donors, and we have a relationship with them already, one of trust, where we have a sense that we might need to reach out directly to this person. And I've done that at the center. There are uh, a number of donors that I communicate with on a regular basis, and I even reach out for advice oftentimes from them on, on things that we're getting ready to do. But then for the wider audience, uh, what I've chosen to do is I have been writing letters or I've been writing email blasts essentially in the form of letters to lay out my logic behind the choices that we've been making, including what we've been doing recently with regard to the Black Lives Matter protests and marches and vigils and, and our participation to ensure that, um, that the community hears directly from me and exactly why we decided to do what we did. And the other thing that, that we've done is I've reached out to some of our community leaders to ensure that they're aware of what uh, we've done and, and why we've made the decisions that we've made. Um, I personally have a, a strong connection to some local law enforcement here in town, some of the leaders in the local law enforcement, and I reached out to them as well to uh, make a connection on what we are doing as an organization. So trying to just cover all bases so that nobody has to wonder why did the center do what they did, but instead proactively making sure that it's spelt out clearly and the message is going out through a variety of channels. Communication is at the heart of everything we do. I, I was just having a conversation with someone recently about sometimes communicating our thinking behind why we chose to do something is so important. Um, so people don't fill in those holes or those gaps with their own stories and their own narrative. So, um, so being able to share your why and the logic that you describe um, really is, is, is actually pretty profound. I think something that not not all of us do a great job at. It's like you said, Stacy, that if we do not provide that information, people make it up. Our mm -hmm. minds automatically do that. And so that's why we have to spell it out in that way. Do you sort of, as we, as we think about um, how, how to communicate, for, for many people who have avoided this issue and these hard, tough topics um, and, and haven't been you know, um, not even trained, but, but don't even know the words um, to use, not use. I hear a lot of people getting caught up in 
um, not wanting to offend, not wanting to say something incorrectly. And, and as a result, that keeps them quiet, which is exactly what uh, we don't want to have happen. So do you have any advice for those listeners who may just not be well-versed in these types of conversations or communications? So I can relate very well to that because I have many of those same fears personally. As a white gentleman, I know that some of the conversations out there are going to be tough right now with regard to race and what's going on. But one of the things that I think is absolutely critical for all of us is that we face our fears and we do everything except to be silent. So right now, our silence really speaks louder than anything else. And when we shy away from the difficult conversations, we're in an incredibly difficult time as a society, but we have an amazing opportunity to change things for the better. And I think that we're seeing the conversation on a level like we've never seen before. And I think that we have a, just a tremendous opportunity to uh, help make things better. And what the black community is looking from us to do is to speak up and engage and find our voice. And as difficult as it is and as comfortable as it is, we have to do that because every day people of color in this country are uncomfortable. And if we are uncomfortable now, that's okay, because that's where we need to be, and we need to be engaged in the conversation. Beautifully said. Well, I am so grateful that you shared with us your, your words of wisdom, your own experience, some of your own vulnerability around this uh, means the world, John. Um, in, in parting, are there any final words you want to share with our listeners? Well, I'm just grateful for the opportunity again, and I hope that as we all continue to recover from the uh, the crisis, and you know, and and we get to whatever our new normal is, that uh, at some point we we see all your listeners come by the center and learn more about what we do. And um, and again, we're 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 very honored to serve the community, and I'm very honored to be here with you today. Well, thank you. And uh, I know you've been an avid listener. So thank you for that as well. That, that means so much. So John, keep up the, uh, the tough work, but the critically important work. We appreciate you. And uh, thanks again, listeners, for joining us for this special episode. Mm -hmm.